latest edition of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Watson. Today's guest is probably one of the most famous surgeons in the world, and he has been that way for some time now. Steve Wexner is a story of the American dream, um, coming from immigrant uh, family in the 19th century, growing up in Brooklyn and the five boroughs of New York and Long Island. He's followed a passionate and um, dedicated career um, from in surgery from the very outset, despite being born into a family of uh, lawyers, judges, and politicians. There is really nothing Steve has not achieved in the uh, field of colorectal surgery. He's um, been in leadership positions in multiple societies. Uh, he's been a researcher, an educator, a mentor, um, and is currently an editor-in-chief. He's been in the Cleveland Clinic in Florida for some decades now, and frankly, shows no signs of slowing down. He retains all the passions he ever had from the very outset. So without further ado, uh, let's uh, go over and uh, talk to Steve about uh, his uh, life and career. I'm John Monson, and this is Surgeon's Lives. This is called Surgeon's Lives, but it has um, uh, the subtitle of Stuff That Matters, um, because although, of course, we'll spend a little bit of time, as I do with most of the guests, talking about their career uh, journey, etc., as much as anything else, I'm interested in what else presses their buttons and um, makes their heart race, et cetera, et cetera. And it varies from person to person. Um, but what I what I like to do is to ask for everybody's benefit. Um, for the person just to start um, with a little brief summary of, um, <clears throat> of their life story, starting with the words, I was born in. I don't have to state the year, do I? No, actually, you're the second person that thought that's what I was asking. Um, it's just that shows paranoia, actually. Everybody else says, no, I was born in Brooklyn or whatever, you know, well, which is actually what Brooklyn. I meant. You know? I was born in Brooklyn. So I there you go. <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, to a family of attorneys, ultimately politicians, um, my great grandparents having emigrated from uh, Kiev and Minsk on the maternal side, and, and on the paternal. Oh, sorry, let me say that over again. Uh, I got it backwards. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, to a family of attorneys, ultimately politicians, um, who were born in the U.S. as were their parents, but ultimately my great grandparents had come from. Uh, Kiev and Minsk on my maternal side, and uh, on the paternal side from Krakow, which interestingly enough, I subsequently discovered on the tombstones of my great grandparents was part of Austria uh, when they were born there in, in the 1860s and when they emigrated to the US uh, in 1883, uh, it was part of Austria. Uh, so I did manage to trace lineage a bit back beyond Brooklyn. And like many people who were born in, in Brooklyn, ended up in Long Island, where I uh, went to high school and then migrated back to the five boroughs to Manhattan for 
undergraduate at Columbia, uh, save for uh, a self-created exchange program at University College London, um, and went uh, back to New York, finished up, stayed in Manhattan for medical school at Cornell, stayed in Manhattan for general surgery residency at the Roosevelt Hospital, which subsequently became St. Luke's Roosevelt. Yep through multiple other uh, metamorphoses and now yeah. is Mount Sinai West when I was there as part of Columbia University uh, so that that those are the roots but I'll, I'll stop and let you ask so you, you, there. as you say you were um, your dad was a judge I think yeah uh, a well, lawyer father, and a judge or yeah my my dad was a, an attorney um, and uh, interesting enough he he went to um, uh, he started at Brooklyn College and when he ended up in, in Korea um, in the forces, uh, developed for, uh, frostbite in his toes. He was stationed mm -hmm. in Incheon, which is now where the International Airport is, used to be an army base, and was told when he got to New York, he uh, might well have an amputation if he stayed in cold weather. So he had a friend who was at the University of Miami. And oddly enough, he went to the University of Miami and did college and law school in something like five years combined, uh, and then went back to Brooklyn. He ultimately, yes, did become the supervising judge of the Supreme Court for Long Island, Nassau, and Suffolk counties. Uh, and his dad, my paternal grandfather, also he went to law school in, in New York, um, and um, he became Governor Nelson Rockefeller's Undersecretary of Labor mm. uh, for New York State. In the if we passed away in 1969, so it would have been in the in the mid 60s and and so on. And my sister is an attorney, although she's uh, doesn't practice. She's a consultant. She's an entertainment law. Used to work for Viacom and then subsequently BBC and some others. Right. So, so I'm the I'm the black sheep. Clearly, yeah. I was I'm just going to say medicine. you're the you're the odd man out. So what was the trigger for medicine? Then? You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> I I suspect it's two separate events. Number one, when I was I don't know four or five years old, my but my paternal grandmother, uh, in retrospect, suffered what was a myocardial infarction and died. And it was in a small, what was called a bungalow in the Catskills in, in New York in the Adirondacks. And it's just a small place. And I, I guess I must have known what was going on. And within about a year, my newborn sister ended up with a very high fever from memory, 103, 104, something in an emergency room. And I think those two exposures, the only things I can think of, that, that made me say, you know, I want to go into medicine and uh, kind of stuck with it, except for like most uh, people my age in the uh, 1960s, uh, you know, a brief stint of wanting to be an astronaut till uh, <laughs> my thoughts came back down to earth. But that was, I think, fairly ubiquitous during the space race. Yeah, I'm not sure also um, you're the right size for an astronaut. I think they have space constraints. I hadn't even gotten that far, my, and my not to mention my vision as well. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the co the coordination, we didn't even get there. So, <laughs> so uh, and at some point in medical school, um, you know, I don't know whether you had the opportunity to listen to to Robbie's uh, interview, um, but you know, he told me the story of his. You know, he took some time before he um, he became convinced that he wanted to do surgery. In fact, he took some time before he was convinced he wanted to do medicine. He took a year off in the middle of his residency to go find himself. Um, but 
you know, when did you jump onto the surgery thing? And, 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 you know, was it early? Did you always know, or were you a late bloomer like, uh, like uh, Robbie? No, mine was well before even high school. I mean, as a young kid, it just, for whatever the reason, it seemed to appeal to me, maybe because the failure of medical therapy from the paramedics and whatever happened in the emergency room, maybe, who knows. But uh, the idea that you could do some kind of an intervention, I suppose, uh, I, I don't really have a recollection of an epiphany at any given moment in time, nor a specific cogent rationale. I just remember as far back as I can think wanting to be a surgeon. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't just I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be a surgeon. Now, colorectal, that didn't enter into the picture till I was already at Roosevelt Hospital, but, uh, but certainly surgeon did. And did you, did you have a plan at that point? I mean, you you have a reputation. Um, I can say this sort of thing to you because I've known you for a few years, but you do have a reputation of knowing where you're going. Um, did you have a plan for, uh, you know, you went into uh, St. Luke's or Roosevelt as it was. Um, uh, what was the plan at that time? What was the ambition? Was there an ambition? Well, well, yeah, I mean, it, it did change within surgery what I wanted a, a, a couple of times. So, you know, but but way before there. So when I was in high school, before I even ever had a driving license, I, I was doing work at uh, Queens Hospital Center, which undoubtedly now has another name. Um, and I was doing research there in high school as a volunteer, you know, just getting my feet wet with things. Uh, and when I went to Columbia, I although I was pre-med, I, I was an English major quite deliberately because I thought that it'd be a very good idea to learn how to write and to um, hone those particular skills. Also part of why I did an exchange in the UK to, to further pursue you know, a literature and English language. Um, so that was part of the plan, it was academic as opposed to, mm -hmm. it never crossed my mind to do private practice. I was thought somehow academic and therefore the English language, uh, English major. And the idea um, of getting involved. So I did volunteer work in high school at Queens Hospital. I, throughout college, was doing volunteer work up at Albert Einstein Medical College. I used to take the subway up to the Bronx. I was doing volunteer work there. And then I also, even before I started medical school, I finished college a semester early because of high school AP credits and credits from London and whatnot. And somehow I finished early and I spent uh, six or eight months, I don't remember the exact time, at what was then called Sydney Farber Cancer Center, doing mm -hmm. research there too. So, I mean, it was interspersed throughout yeah. my career. Um, you know, so when I was in medical school, the he researched there at the time. Tom Shires was the um, the chair of surgery at Cornell, and so you know, shock trauma was was yeah. really what was big. And obviously, that's kind of what I what I looked at. But um, I wanted a more clinically oriented program, um, and that's why I thought Roosevelt would be a great choice going across town because at that time Cornell was it, it may, may be very well different now uh, under Fabrizio's leadership. But, but at that time, there wasn't the same clinical emphasis, particularly for the residents, that there was at some of the other hospitals. This is all pre-Libby Zion and changes yeah, like that. Sure, New York, sure. Everything's different now. But to me, it attracted me. 
Now you you later in life you you know your your great mentor was um sadly missed David Jagelman um but in early life did you have uh, were there mentors that you know really uh, became role models for you yeah absolutely and I think that's why I picked colorectal um even as an intern you know, I was keenly interested to continue research and Roosevelt was definitely clinical it was absolutely not the least bit academic mm-hmm. and, and you know for those people who are viewing and listening there's no epic it's not electronic these are handwritten records and you'd have to go to the bowels of the hospital and, and thumb through charts to try and find things but i was interested in pursuing research and there were two colorectal surgeons tom daly uh, and rick brave uh both of whom Tired, uh, but they were great mentors. They saw you want to get interested, you get interested, and that—that's why I think so many of their general surgery uh, residents went into colorectal. People like uh, Lester Gottesman and um, uh, Elliot Prager, and I mean just a, a host of people who who ended up going into colorectal surgery. Um, thinking Bob Gardeen, Howard Hardy. I mean, a lot of people, there were three chiefs a year, and I'd say at least one every year went into Colorado mm-hmm. because of their mentorship. I was probably of the group the most engaged in the academic aspect. So Rick Brabe and Tom Daly had me submit papers every year to the New York Society of Colorectal Surgeons, and I used to go present at those meetings, and I got to meet a lot of people from mm-hmm. North Shore, from Long Island Jewish, from downtown hospitals that aren't even there anymore from from beth israel from uh you know columbia coming in from new jersey and and such and i met a lot of people and the thing that struck me about colorectal is that people were really nice really warm and welcoming and i networked with people who were far my senior who just really treated me very nicely and I thought this is a good group of people. I spend my career with these people. Besides, you know, what you do as a colorectal surgeon, all the usual stuff. Why sure. somebody like the field of surgery? The people in it, I thought, were also really, really uh, nice, warm people, and and that certainly helped, you know, solidify the decision where to go. So Rick Brabe, who was an alumnus of Stan Goldberg, Tom trained at the Leahy, but uh, Rick was a bit of a Stan, and and he was asked to give some talks at Stanley's annual course. Uh, and yeah. said to me, would you like to get these talks organized for me? Now, remember, in those days, making slides wasn't PowerPoint. It was... Sure, I remember. As you remember, you, had, mm-hmm. you know, put the little letters on a paper and then yeah. use PXMAT film and go to the darkroom and develop. But I helped him with his talks. And in exchange, he took me out to program to watch him give the lectures uh, for several years in a row. And that, that certainly helped, you know, in the decision. So it's, yes, good mentorship. And is that what triggered your um, your decision to go to Minnesota or Minneapolis, um, or or was Minneapolis just you know one of your top three or whatever? I mean, or you know, my my choices at the end of the day, I, I was fortunate enough in, sorry, I think nineteen eighty two could have been eighty three to have met uh, Bill Heald at uh, Stan's course and and, and uh, sat with him and spoke. And uh, he, he said, why don't you come over and visit me in Basingstoke? And little did he know I'd take him up on the offer because as somebody who is a fanatical traveler and an avid Anglophile, I was like, you didn't have to ask twice. So mm-hmm. 
so Bill became a mentor and I, you know, used to stay at his home frequently and you know, subsequently my kids stayed in their home and in his home and bound, uh, Bill and Bounce's house in Basingstoke and, and, and uh, so on in uh, Odium actually. And so I, he became a mentor too, because I used to go whenever I could go and spend some time in, in the operating room in theater, as it were, with him. So my dilemma was he wanted me to be his his senior registrar, mm-hmm. and he had a position for me in, in, in the Basingstoke District Hospital, and I was deciding to apply in the match or not. And you know, and, and I remember getting some advice from you know Stan Goldberg, not where to go or, but get your U.S. colorectal training done first. You know, yeah. then you can always go do something else. So that was my choice: was go to UK or stay right. in. So within U.S., yeah, that was my top choice. I mean, if nothing else, I'd been there multiple times and, and sure. knew the people. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. It was a great program. So, um, and and Bill likes to tell that story in a lot of speeches when I introduce him that I was supposed to have been at his SR and never was. So. <laughs> and you joined, of course, um, you know, a fairly legendary fellowship year. Um, I've already interviewed one. I'm due to interview another and sadly we cannot interview the final member of the year um interesting group um of fellows that year um that would be my description um (laughs) and um well that's your that's your cue to um to tell me your description of of the group um as you saw because as i say um all all fascinating and wonderfully um, colorful individuals, but different. Yeah. Oh, no, it's a great group of people. I mean, everyone went in a somewhat different direction. Mm. I mean, obviously, you know, Robbie uh, went in the direction of DCR and being editor-in-chief, and Larry Whalen did a great job in the early days of laparoscopy with some of the best basic science bench research mm-hmm. that colorectal surgeon did way before most other colorectal surgeons were uh, going into any kind of basic research. In fact, just to put it in context, when we were a fellowship class, which was 87, 88, if memory serves correct, um, there were no full-time university colorectal surgeons, period. I mean, the program was called University of Minnesota, but it was a private practice out of Abbott Northwestern and Paul Ramsey and a variety of other hospitals uh, around the area. And although we went to the university, it was just to do colonoscopies on a periodic basis mm-hmm. with Sandy Navatbongs, who subsequently went to Mayo. Mm-hmm. And, so there was none. Now, here we are, you know, 35, 36 years later, I don't think you could find a university department of surgery that doesn't have a colorectal surgeon. So, mm-hmm. so you know, you have to put it in context for where you were. So the fact that Larry did what he did going back to New York and he was first at my alma mater. He trained for mm-hmm. General Roosevelt, uh, sorry, Columbia. I was at Roosevelt, which is a Columbia hospital. He was at Columbia, the main hospital at Presbyterian. And he went back to my alma mater to Roosevelt and, and then changed to Columbia. And I think now he's at Lenox Hill, but he did great work. Tony Vernava stayed um, where he trained at St. Louis University and then I had the chance to, and actually, ironically enough, Rick Brabay, who'd been my mentor in Roosevelt, went to St. Louis University and became Tony's mentor. Uh, 
for a while, which was kind of an interesting passed uh, one off to the other. And I had the chance to recruit Tony. So in my yeah. 12 years, did his chief of staff at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, 80, from 97 to 2008. Somewhere around 98, we started working on the Cleveland Clinic Naples campus. And I was able to recruit Tony from St. Louis University to come and lead our um, colorectal department, our education and research uh, areas, uh, in fact, surgery over, over in Naples. And unfortunately, in 2006, the Cleveland Clinic gave up the, uh, the Naples campus. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I got a chance to work with Tony again quite closely for at least probably seven, eight years when he was in Florida. So you, um, um, as you say, the you know the 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 three or four musketeers um, had you know went in different directions um, in their careers, all um, very successful, etc., and um, and all you know. Um, highly productive, um, etc. Um, you're, um, you know, you've been characterized by, um, you know, very strong leadership um, skills and uh, progression and success, etc. I, I had the privilege of um, being at the um, at the course um, uh, last year that was put on in San Diego about leadership and one thing or another and had to debate Jim um, Fleshman, uh, the old fashioned conversation about his leadership, um, you know, nature or nurture. Um, where do you where do you sit on that? I mean, you've been spectacularly successful um, in, in terms of, you know, your leadership achievements, but um, do you think it was um, it, it was genetic, or uh, or did you teach yourself? I mean, you obviously learn as you go along, but you know, where do you, where do you say, sit on that debate? Well, I, I think that certain people have leadership skills, and that you know comes out from an early age. You know, certain people end up deciding you know, what they're going to do with their friends, or they become the student council president, or they you know, end up being the one to edit the yearbook or whatever it happens to be. I mean, people somehow evolve into a leadership role without being anointed into it because they're all sort of just the group decides how it goes. And some people like it and some people may have those skills. They don't want to use them. But but I think it's a combination of, of, of having them and, and enjoying being able to accomplish something by collaborating with people. So, I, you know, I, I mean, I think it's more of collaboration and leadership because you know good leadership should be getting people to do things that you want done because they want them done mm -hmm. uh, not because they think you want them done but collaborating and, and getting people to a common good um is i think the best way to lead is, is getting everybody engaged everyone understands where they're going but they'll agree or maybe not all but most people agree and and so i think it's it's to some degree innate but then, as you say, you definitely keep learning. Now, there are facets in leadership that weren't formalized. They always existed, but they weren't formalized the way they are now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I can tell you things, for example, my, you know, my much better half, Mariana Barrow, who's our chief of staff and board of governors and so on here at Cleveland Clinic, uh, spent over two years getting a master's degree yeah. in conflict resolution. Now, yeah. You and I are in school. 
you know, conflict may have been verbal, it may have been physical, and resolution was getting called into somebody's office, perhaps, but it's not the way it's done now. And so this is an evolving field that we all have to know. Um, the way you speak to people, the expectations of people, for example, um, as uh, generations change, so too do priorities. And we have to be respectful of that. So part of leadership also is, is recognizing that the way we did things or do things may not work for other people. And so we've got to be respectful of that. So there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of learning involved, obviously. Do you think, um, if I flipped it around the other way, um, do you think you would be happy being the third spear carrier in the left? You know, a member of the chorus? I mean, it, it depends where you are because people do shift chairs. You can't lead everything because there's just not enough time in the day. So, you know, in certain, I mean, take, for example, publishing. I mean, okay, I'm an editor-in-chief, but for other journals, I'm an editorial board member. That's fine. I, you you sure. can't lead, lead everything. Um, and, and I think that's reasonable. And, and you kind of pick where you're going to lead. Um, I have no desire, for example, to be CEO where I work. I had an acting CEO role for some time circa in 2000 i don't remember exactly um and i got taste to it and it's, it's not what i want to do i like the clinical care so clinical academic leadership sure but corporate leadership so i'm happy to have a seat at the table in that regard and i think you know if you try and lead everything you my suspicion is you may not lead anything well and you got to kind of pick what yeah. you're going to lead and what you're going to participate now you're um uh, I, I, we agreed not to mention this in terms of uh, numbers, but you're um, of an age that um, people like people, <laughs> people like you and me, are um, you know beginning to think about um, the R word um, and how you would approach it. And you know, I've asked this of numerous people, and of course, the responses are very variable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, where are you um where do you stand what's your view about retirement as a surgeon you you to um to uh, to uh, quote a reasonably topical thing somebody might say you're in your prime um others might say not so much um uh, where, where do you sit on that what, what's your thinking yeah hang on my computer's just done something very awkward and i can't see you uh, so. <laughs> yeah it probably has a natural filter, you know. <laughs> no, I, it's it's this new upgrade they put it. Okay, we're good. I think I need to move the mouse periodically. Um, so I think you know retirement is something very individual for, mm -hmm. for different people. Uh, a lot of people in what you and I do, colorectal surgery, they sort of drift into anorectal surgery and colonoscopy. Yep. Um, and then they you know, go part-time and retire, whatever. But there are a few people who persist, uh, and Vic Fazio was certainly one of them. Um, and, and for me, the R word is redo, because you know, more and more of what I do is redo pelvic surgery. And the, the complexity and the volume is, as you say, the prime of my career. I, 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 I do more 
volume and more complex than I've done in the 35 years at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. It just keeps increasing, and I and I thrive on it. I, I love it. I think it's great teaching the residents, taking care of the patients, you know, doing the research. So on a personal level, my um, uh, shall we say role models are Bill Heald, who still runs around the world teaching, Angelita Habergama, who still runs around the world teaching, uh, George Bercy, who's just about 103 out of, out of Cedar <laughs> Sinai. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, there are a, a host of people like that who stay very, very active. Um, and to me, that's what I'd like to do is, is keep going uh, as long as you're we not, uh, You're not going anywhere soon. Um, so right. Jeff Matthews um, said to me that, um, and I, I quote two people, um, Jeff Matthews said to me that he, he thinks there's something to be said for surgeons beyond a certain age, whatever that age might be, right. some, probably somewhere in the 60s, um, voluntarily doing psychomotor cognitive testing with not punitively, et cetera, et cetera, so that they at least have insight. Barry Salky said to me that as he was, you know, around that age, he made sure he had a, a friend and a colleague who was, um, you know, tasked with um, saying to him, should it ever happen, you know, hey, I think it's time. Um, in terms of the operating skills, um, you know, the legend, uh, you know, of Michael DeBakey operating into his 90s. I mean, I, you know, my personal view is I don't think that's a good thing. Um, no. But what do you think about, um, do you think we should make surgeons retire at an age? I know it sounds very socialistic or communistic, but, um, you know, is there, do you want to be operated on by an 84-year-old? Um, what do you think? No, I think there probably is a limit, but I think just as the entire uh, life expectancy has increased and mm -hmm. everyone talks about, you know, 60 is the new 50 and so on, I think that limit has gone up. So when I was hired at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, many practices throughout the country had a mandatory age 65 years retirement. Um, that's gone away. That might move up to 75, perhaps, but I, I don't think it's 85. So I, I think there's, you know, I think it's gone up, but it's not become infinite. And, and I think there is a point there um, where you probably should, before something happens, you know, say, okay, I'm, I'm going to step aside. I just think that it's probably approximately 10 years more than it was 35 yeah. years ago when it was 65 and it's probably more likely 75 people are taking better care of themselves i think doing laparoscopic or robotic surgery is arguably easier than big abdominal incisions um, plus now we very carefully monitor our our we audit continuously mm -hmm. audit our results and not just us externally uh, third-party payers public databases which wasn't done with that same level of detail and scrutiny. So if things change, we'll know it. And people talk about a learning curve. You start out in practice, there's a lot of problems early on when you're operated by somebody who's 35 years old, who's just getting going, and they haven't had these experiences and they're working through them. And there undoubtedly is at the other end of the spectrum too. Um, but both of those things are tracked. And I think that's a good thing.
what about the other side um namely the leadership side so um you know you've been a, a chief of something in the cleveland clinic um for a couple of decades um um uh, until you step aside um there is uh, you know, what i'm getting at is um you know what point do we give someone else a chance um you know uh, if you let's say you keep going until you're i don't know 75 for example or, or maybe even um uh what what do you think about that issue do you think chairs should you know have a finite tenure um 15 years whatever it might be simply to create the new generational cycle well i i think there's n number one i think it is important to always make opportunities for people and with the exception of of, of department chair every other job i've i've had I've you know moved aside for somebody mm -hmm. else. For example, I used to chair uh, research and education, and Rick Weiss now does that. I you know I, I used to run the I used to be the director of research for the department, and Giovanna De Silva does that. And I used to be head of the uh, physiology lab when I first started. And, you know Dana Sands does that, and so on and so forth. So moving mm -hmm. things over and transitioning to other people is important as is succession planning and and you know succession planning certainly will be done I, I think it's important I also think it's important not to just abruptly step aside and have a vacuum uh, so I think getting people up to speed uh, is appropriate now at the Cleveland Clinic we have two processes to ensure that you know a leader is still effectively leading and basically Every year you go through a review by the Board of Governors. Right. Every member of staff from the most junior person to the CEO goes through an annual peer review process where your performance is measured, your academic performance, your clinical performance, so on and so forth. And comments are solicited about how you're, how you're doing. That's annual. Every five years, every chair, and I just completed mine, it goes through essentially a 360 where everybody reporting to you is uh, is asked about your leadership and how you're doing and are you bringing fresh ideas and are you effective and so on. And if, thankfully for me, you know, I, I was uh, reappointed uh, based on all of what's been done as well as what people think. So, you know, you could probably accomplish a lot, but if you're not effective at it, and putting the Cleveland Clinic aside, I, I think in any organization, you know, if you accomplish a lot, but people aren't happy, that organization should look at, okay, well, maybe this is a lot more could be accomplished if people were happy and engaged and supportive, right? And on the other hand, if people are happy, engaged and supportive, but you're not accomplishing anything, you're just a good guy and you're everybody's friend, that's not helpful either. So I think our, I think we have a phenomenal process. It's, it's been in place here for, uh, what, hundred five years or something or other now, you know, the, the way these mm -hmm. reviews are done. And so we, so we seem to, you know, be on, I'm very, he's obviously been in a right most of the time, years. you know, as you yeah. say, so you, you, when you go home, um, um, you know, just to pivot a little bit, um, uh, you know, the, your background uh, as in your physical background is a little different to my physical background. <laughs> <laughs> um and that uh, that just shows that i'm uh you know 
a long-standing failure, <laughs> etc. Looks like you're successful racing cars. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Somebody, I, I, I was um, describing um, my failure or my lack of talent racing a car once to a to a guy who was a professional race driver, and he said, "Let me tell you something." He said. You're a better race driver than I am a surgeon. So, <laughs> so that may well be true. I would accept that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, so outside of work, what does uh, Steve Wexner do or like to do? Or or are you just um, a sad and lonely workaholic? <laughs> no, definitely not sad. I'm, I'm definitely far from sad. I mean, I'm energized by what I do at work every day. So that sad is definitely not in the uh, vernacular um and nor is lonely and, and no, exactly yeah that's what i certainly like to do and it meshes very well because i love to travel and mm -hmm. so both of my uh, sons are in new york and have been for many years and i go up there very frequently and spend time in new york and spend time with them uh and we travel together as well particularly the younger one who loves traveling he's got my bug um uh, as does Mariana's daughter, who's also uh, in New York uh, most of the time. And so we can parlay, you know, if uh, maybe there's a meeting and we tack on a lot of extra time or some extra time. Maybe yeah. there's no meeting. We just go away. But I would say the travel with family is clearly at the, that's, your, that's your big thing. Yeah, yeah that's my priority. I mean, I, I really enjoy uh exploring the world and so much the better if i've got one or both of my kids or you know or, or, or her daughter with us it's straight fun you're not a you, you don't do the traditional things you know the um a good walk ruined you know as golf was described or things like that i mean you're, well i i you know i take i try to take care of myself i like cycling although very careful where to do it down here in Florida, <laughs> but uh <laughs> but uh, I like cycling. I work with a, you know, I work with a trainer. I you know I do all of those things uh, you know just to keep physically active and physically fit. Try and train a lot of cardio. Um, definitely you know love work love love different restaurants around the world. Eating eating uh, different kinds of, of of food. So my older son had gone to uh, boarding school for golf. David Ledbetter Golf Academy. I used mm -hmm. to bring him around the country to tournaments uh, but I didn't really play I mean I sort of picked up clubs and hacked around but I, for my birthday 15 months ago more or less it, both the kids got me golf lessons right so mm. so I've now been taking golf lessons and I must say the best part of golf is that every time they come to Florida we play golf together so yeah. I'm not terribly good but it doesn't matter it, it's you know a great excuse to go out and, and spend any number of hours with with them outdoors you know in golf yeah. so yeah. so, so I, I wouldn't call myself an avid golfer but i'm i'm enjoying it as an you're not in the to be more time with them not like barry salky no no or david ratner or people like right, that. Or david ratner and i've played golf well my wesley my older son has played golf with both of them and and gary gaselter and others and i you know, I used to tag along and, and whack the ball into the water or into somebody's house. <laughs> but I yes, now at least know how to hit it straight. Um, so have you counted up the number of countries? Um, no. no, 
I, and do you I, have I, a bucket list of um of countries that you're missing? Um not really. I, I mean I'm I'm fortunate in that I'm getting to go to pretty much any place that, that sounds interesting at, at some point in time. Um and I've got a trip uh coming up uh, next week to Azerbaijan, uh yeah. that I've been to and I've got I know there's a uh, for what you like, there's a Formula One there, right? There's a Grand Prix in last Baku, week, yeah, Baku, and uh, well, I think it's in Miami uh, as well. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was Baku was last weekend, and Miami's this weekend, right? So Baku and and ESCP this year is in Vilnius that I've not visited. So you know, eventually you do get around to yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the different places, um, and. And that's often what I'll do is I go somewhere and for business, it's great. Okay, put that on the list to go back just for fun and pleasure. Then that's more or less what I, what I end up doing. Um, but I don't have a specific list of places like, you know, I've not yeah. been, yeah. would like to go some, I think would be interesting, but probably off limits now. Uh, you know, Iran and Iraq are supposed to have great artifacts and, and wonderful mm -hmm. history, but I'd don't think I you know, in the near future be going to either one, but they're interesting and situation changes. Yeah, I was in um, I was <laughs> I was in Baghdad the uh, day that um, Ayatollah Khomeini died um, in Iran, and um, <laughs> there were quite a lot of celebrations, obviously, in the Iraqi the streets of Baghdad and. Um, some several hundred people died from the falling bullets, um, etc. And we were staying in the Al Rashid Hotel, which was the only rocket-proof hotel in Baghdad. This is courtesy of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland that ran one of the hospitals there before the war, before the first war, um, etc. So it's an interesting experience. Uh, you're quite right. So uh, a few um, interviewee-type questions. Um, so. If you had the opportunity to um, uh, using, you know, what you know now as a as a mature Steve Wexner in his prime to the 25 year old Steve Wexner, um, what would you say to do differently or, or would you? Um, I'm not sure I'd do a lot different, but I might try, and we were talking about it earlier, you know, leadership and just sort of having a seat at the table. And I might try and have a more active seat just to be a little bit more diffuse, because as you develop your career, you, you tend to focus more and more. For me, ASCRS, ACS, you know, SAGES, American Board of Colonial Surgery, but there are other groups where you could potentially, you know, both really enjoy and derive personal benefit. Uh, from being engaged but again it's a matter of not spreading yourself too thin um but but short of that i, I don't think there's a whole lot um you know always i presume answers the next question which um you, you don't sound like somebody who has any significant regrets no 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 absolutely no i'm very happy with where i am or i wouldn't still be here 35 years later uh Maybe I'm at the halfway point, you know, 35 more years, but I don't, I don't yeah, think yeah, so. Yeah. It'd be nice, but I don't think so. I asked um, uh, Robbie when he, uh, when he was sending me, he, he said, what pictures do you want? I said, I, um, you know, whatever you choose, but 
if it would be possible, um, would there be a picture of Robbie Madoff with hair? Um, hmm. And it turned out to be impossible. <laughs> well, I, um, yeah, I, I, I do have, but they're not for public consumption. They're from <laughs> the uh, days undergraduate at Columbia. And, uh, oh, that would be fine. Then that's a definite requirement. Yeah. <laughs> it cost you more than you could afford. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you like to be remembered and how do you think you will be remembered? Well, I, I think being a mentor another word that um we were talking about how you acquire leadership skills over the years and there are different expressions that are now used sponsor and mm -hmm. ally mm -hmm. uh, weren't used until much more recently in, in my career and I, I think that's important for example um not because of any conscious reason whatsoever but i've trained huge number of, of women in colorectal surgery and mentored and sponsored many others around the world and now suddenly that's fashionable to use those terms it's just something i've always done i just have always found people energetic eager enthusiastic to be mentored to be supported to be their ally it's easy right and so there's a host of people who want to do that men and women all over the world um and I think to me, that's the most important thing because it's a bit like teaching somebody. If you give somebody a fish, they have a meal. You teach them to fish, they have a meal for life. So it's the same with surgeons, right? If you take care of your own patients, you've done fine, presumably, for your patients. If you've taught somebody else to operate and you've taught somebody to research and question and teach, you're helping that many more people around the world. And it's a legacy. And, and it's, you know, it's not tangible. Mm -hmm. No, very significantly. Right. And so me, you know, to, to, to be remembered as a, a mentor, an ally, a sponsor is, is very important, uh, more so than as a leader, but that I've influenced people's lives. So you, you, you raised that point. So, um, you know, the second part of the question was, how do you think you will be remembered? Do you think you will be remembered as the mentor or the leader? Presumably both, you know? I, yeah, possibly both, but... Uh, to, to me, it's very gratifying. People, many times, I don't realize the impact I've had on them by working with them remotely, because as you and I are both yeah. engaged in, in, in social media and in video experiences like this and in collaborative research, and you know, and you're also very well-traveled internationally, so you interface with people, and it doesn't really register with you or me necessarily the same as the mentee, the sponsee, the person to whom you've been an ally. And hearing how grateful they are, I think that is more so being remembered that than as a leader. You know, as the impact yeah. you have on these people. And yeah. I think it's wonderful. All right, I'm going to finish with some um, quickie questions. These are, you're familiar with this concept. It's sort of the 60-second thing. Mm -hmm. um, you get to answer... Uh, series of um of questions um there are no right or wrong answers although clearly i do know the correct answer to these <laughs> um <laughs> and um you will only be partially judged um okay. on, on your <laughs> answers are you ready to go sure okay baseball or football neither <laughs> coke or pepsi neither Mac or PC? 
PC. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Beach or mountains? Uh, city. Beetles or stones? Um, marginally beetles. Home or away? Ah, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, home. Love traveling, but it's always great coming home, particularly when home is in South Florida. <laughs> All right, Steve. Hence the cities. That's, for me, I live very deliberately in a quiet, peaceful place in a, in a tourist resort area like you. And I, I love going to you know, London and Athens and Tokyo and all these walking, Buenos Aires, walk, walk, cities, walk, and then come home to the peace and quiet. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a pretty good um, balance, isn't it? You know. Yep. Very fortunate. Yeah. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to chat today. Um, and uh, appreciate we've known each other for 30 years or so and um it's been um uh, fascinating to uh, watch your skills i've learned a lot from you over the years uh, probably not nearly enough as i should uh, enough as i should have but um i'll take what i can um and um thanks very much and hopefully you'll see this uh, coming out uh, fairly soon you're very kind. Uh, thanks for having me. O always a pleasure to see you and to be with you. And I guess I'll see you soon in uh, Seattle.